Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Emma Nash. Emma is a family law partner at Fletcher Day. She is the founder of the Family Law Language Project and is a strong advocate for reform within the family justice system. Emma is a strong believer in making family law easier to understand and more accessible to everyone. So a very, very warm welcome, Emma. Thank you, Rob, and thank you for that introduction. My absolute pleasure. And before we dive into all your amazing projects and experiences to date, we do have a customary icebreaker question here on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is, on the scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very real, what would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality? Well, um, I do like watching Suits. Uh, I always feel inspired to uh, up my game in terms of my own wardrobe, uh, seeing all their lovely, glamorous outfits and such. However, um, and very much from a English family law perspective, I can't go any higher than two. Uh, it's just not the way we do things here. Everything's very quick on the TV. You're in court one minute, your case is resolved the next. We've got a much slower pace here um, and fewer surprises in terms of uh, popping up witnesses and twists and turns. It, it's, it can be can be quite exciting in family law, uh, but not quite at that pace. Uh, but it is a great show. I do, I do enjoy it. Oh, that's good. It's good to have a, a guest on that really uh, enjoys the show. And I think, you know, you can probably give it a 10 in terms of the outfits, the way they look, absolutely. But in terms of reality of the law, too, you've justified your answer I agree. Let's move swiftly on. So to begin with, Emma, would you mind telling us about your background and your journey? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I should probably say I tried very hard not to become a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> it hasn't really worked out for me. Uh, I have always been a believer in you should follow what interests you. Uh, and I did that throughout my education. Uh, thought I was going to end up as a space scientist, then a chemist. Then um, when I really didn't want to do that, I started focusing on where I wanted to be. Uh, and law seemed like a good choice to be studying because it would open various doors. Uh, and I'm very interested in international law uh, and I got my master's in public international law and thought I would be end up doing something in international affairs and, and human rights. Um, that didn't work out for various reasons uh, to do with uh, some administrative errors in the civil service and uh, uh, the crash in 0708. So law really was my fallback option. I, I went into it thinking, right, I'll do commercial law. Um, very fortunate. I got uh, a, a training contract at, at, at the time with a, a commercial firm that specialised in helping entrepreneurs and lots of people in the sports industry and thought that was it. I'll be a commercial lawyer for a bit until I can find my way back to, to, to the international work. And I really rather enjoyed it. And then the firm I was with decided they wanted to set up a family team because a lot of the people that they were working for were talking sort of athletes, former athletes, people in, who provide services to big sporting events, wanted pe the same lawyers to be dealing with their, uh, their divorces and their wills. Um, so we set up a family team and, and I found I really rather enjoyed that as well. Uh, and it got to the point where I thought, right, this is it. This is for me. Um, this is the area of law I want to practice. And I haven't really looked back. Uh, I absolutely love what I do. I think family law is a very unique area of law in that it, it's very legal. We deal with a lot of uh, the law uh, in, in terms of statutes and case law. It's also very dynamic. It changes quickly. So 
that even in the um, 10 plus years I've been qualified, that, that the landscape and the law itself, the advice we're giving clients is so different from what it was uh, back then. Um, it also allows you to be very creative. Uh, you're not sort of uh, uh, hemmed in by what the statutes say or what the, the, the policies say. You know, your clients need a creative solution for them. Um, and it's very people orientated. It's all about people. It's about their stories. It's about what outcomes they want for their lives. It's about understanding that um, and building those relationships. Um, and I think one of the best things for me, having looked at and practiced in other areas, is the community of the family law community. Uh, very few other areas where there is so much support for you, not just in terms of keeping up to date with things, but in terms of actually understanding you know, how stressful this job is and how difficult it can be there's a really strong community of family lawyers in this country i love that and thank you so much for for sharing and particularly when you mentioned community because that's something we're exceptionally passionate about on the legally speaking podcast and you know supporting people guiding people through big career events or like you say you might have some challenging um issues at work and just being able to speak to other people get opinions you know and have that community around you to support is invaluable and despite you not wishing to be a lawyer and to be everything else <laughs> aside from a lawyer you've been hugely successful and achieved a great amount and as of today you are a family lawyer partner at Fletcher Day. So what does a typical day look like for you as a partner? Well, that's another great thing. There's no real typical day, but um, I've, I've got, a, so I do a mixed caseload. So usually some uh, family lawyers specialise in either the divorce and the finances or the children's side of things. Um, and I'm one of those lawyers who does both, which works very well for me. Um, and it's probably easier just to go through a typical week rather than a typical day uh, because I also am a solicitor advocate. I've got higher rights of audience, so I represent clients in court. So usually I will have one, maybe two hearings in a week, so I'll, I'll need to do the preparation as the advocate for that. That usually involves a couple of meetings, drafting documents, and then, of course, attending the hearing these days. And I, I think certainly for me, since the pandemic started in March 2020, every hearing I've attended has been remote. Uh, so it's usually sitting in front of uh, a uh, laptop like this or with uh, my phone. Um, so that's one side of the work I do. I uh, usually will have some client meetings. The initial client meetings are probably the most interesting because that's where you really get to know them. And then the cases that you're sort of in the middle of, you'll have correspondence to draft um, or dictate and send, and send uh, to a great group of secretaries who support us. Um, and then there's there's all the other work that goes around being a family lawyer in terms of reading up on developments, um, uh, supporting other members of the team and, uh, you know, doing the, the writing and the other work I do um, outside of sort of the, the, the client work. So it, it's hugely varied, um, but always very busy and always very interesting. Yeah, it's it's fascinating area of law, and I, you know I love that you you're so passionate when you speak about it. And you you touched on there that you're a solicitor advocate. And for those that are probably less familiar, could you explain what the difference is between that and a traditional solicitor, and how you become you know the process of actually getting to becoming a solicitor advocate? Absolutely. And I think this probably gives me um, an, another opportunity to do the, the suits comparison because lawyers in America, <laughs> they're attorneys, they do everything. They do the client bits, they do the sort of background, they do the preparation and they go and they, they, they speak in court. Whereas in, in this country, in England, we've got a split profession. We've got barristers and they're the people whose skill set is really getting up in court before before judges, preparing the cases um, cross-examining witnesses and getting the best results in court. And then we have the solicitors who provide the, uh, the, 
the, the, the, the sort of face-to-face advice and client time and all the background preparation for those cases. And actually, probably the, the, the biggest and most important thing that, that solicit, family solicitors do is keep cases out of court because we're always trying to find ways to settle. Going to court is very expensive and stressful um, and there's a huge uncertainty with it. So actually, we spend a lot of time keeping things out of court. It doesn't always work and you do need to go to court. Now, I have... Um, so my higher rights allow me to act as the, the barrister role um, up throughout the whole sort of uh, court level in, in this country. Um, and it allows me to step up and provide that service to clients when it's appropriate to do so, uh, which it isn't always. Sometimes I'll be saying, no, we need, we need the specialist barrister with the specialist skills for this particular case. But a lot of the time when you're going to court, you're not cross-examining, you're not going into the evidence, you're doing what we uh, tend to call case management, the administrative side of things, or you're uh, trying to reach agreements. And that's something that I can do. Um, that's something that I do uh, as well. Other solicitors do is just something I happen to do, I think, a bit more of. Yeah, and thank you so much for, for explaining that because I'm sure a lot of people will be thinking that's quite an interesting route to go because you get a good blend of, of, of both. So uh, really, really appreciate you uh, sharing that. You know, But being a family lawyer can involve a lot of emotions. So how do you ensure you don't take your emotions home with you? That is a question I get asked a lot. And it's very easy to say, oh, you just have to you know, compartmentalise it and, and not worry about it. It's not as simple as that. And I think it's really important. It's taken me a long time to actually develop the skills that I have to make sure that, you know, when I'm when I'm going to bed at night, I'm not worrying about that case or it's not it's not actually impacting me negatively outside of work. Um, and part of the way of doing that is the support that you've got, talking to other lawyers around you because they get it. Um, and it's a very difficult job to do in isolation. I think that's a real problem we've had during lockdown. We've all been carrying on practicing what we do, but we haven't had the colleagues around us to just turn around and say, hey, how about this? Or this has just happened. Um, it can be very emotional. And I think there is an element of understanding your role in relation to the clients. The client can often see you as sort of their saviour, that you're on their side, they're paying you to be on their side, um, but you're there to provide legal advice. It's a very specific role. Sometimes I sort of say to clients, I, this is this, I'm a tool for you to be using in this really specific niche purpose. I'm not there to be your counsellor. I'm not there to um, hold your hand through this ho- horrible life experience you may be going to. They need that support from elsewhere because that's not my specialty. My specialty is the law and to provide that service to them. And I think remembering that, that you're not responsible for the position they're in, you're responsible for your role within that is really important. Um, Also, you can say you can say all of this. It, there will still be some cases that will get under your skin um, that you will worry about. Um, and I think having a good regime for recognizing that stress. I do a lot of um, meditation um, uh, and, and exercises that just, just help me deal with, with stress generally, which I think has been very useful for me. But it has taken me a while to really get my, my head around how to do that compartmentalizing, how to get there. And I think it's really important that I see junior lawyers coming up and understanding that, 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 that they're not taking that, that huge sort of burden of the case with them uh, when they leave the office. 
No, I think you've given some real nuggets of, of wisdom there on how you can, you know, really not be affected by that. And I love that you talked about, you know, you are the lawyer, you are there to do the lawyering, stick to what you are instructed to do to your absolute best ability. And I, I think that's really sound advice. So really appreciate that. I mentioned in the intro as well, you do a host of other things and you're the founder of the Family Law Language project so this involves conversations with family solutions groups which i think is fantastic can you tell us more about this project please yeah i'd be delighted to so i do a lot of um writing about family law and i typical lawyer i'm a bit pedantic and all attention <laughs> to detail i get a bit frustrated when you read articles and people are getting things wrong particularly when they're using really important terms about family law and they're getting it wrong um, and I wrote a piece uh, for The Times a couple of years ago now that was picked up by the Family Solutions Group, which is a private working group who's tasked with improving uh, the family uh, justice experience. Um, and they said, what would you want to do something with this? And what started as sort of a bit of a grumble about the media not, not perhaps doing the right research and getting, getting things right has really evolved into something that recognises that the language that we use in family law is so important and so key to the experience of the people who need to use that service. Um, that it's, it's not just about getting it right, it's about understanding the problems that language can cause um, and what the people who need the system need and what they do understand, what they don't understand. Um, I use the example custody a lot because I think, and, and, and this is, a, we see a lot with television shows coming over from the States because it's a term that used, that's used a lot there. We actually removed it from our legal language 30 years ago because we recognise that it's not a term that is appropriate when you're talking about the relationship between a parent and a child. It's also got a lot of other connotations with uh, criminal law um, going into custody um, and having that control over someone. And we've said, no, that's, that's not the right relationship. We, use, we now use child arrangements because that's child-focused. But... The, one of the problems we have is that people hear that term and they think they understand that term and they misunderstand that term and it gets it gets o repeated over and over again and becomes this sort of issue in the media. So as family lawyers, we spend a lot of time explaining what the actual words are. Um, we also use, use technical terms. Lawyers, the law is technical. It has to be to a degree, but that could be really difficult for people to understand, particularly young people who are having to engage with the system. Um, and the best will in the world, I am still a family lawyer, I will not have that perspective. So the Family Law Language Project wants to engage with people, wants to engage with people who are using the system, um, everyone who's involved in the system, um, and really help change the way we use we use the language, explain the language, and help lawyers understand how that, that language is experienced and interpreted so we can improve it and move it forward with the ultimate end game is if we do that we are going to improve the experience of the family justice system for the people who need to use it yeah really really well said emma and i completely agree and you touched on that regarding my next question actually because as part of the family law language project you know you aim to make the impact through easy to understand making it less hostile and more accessible to everyone which i think is so so important can you explain the importance of ensuring the law is clear particularly for all different types of people in society absolutely the law is not for lawyers uh it's 
we are the ones that probably have the most experience of it because it's our day-to-day lives, but it is not there for us. Particularly family law, it is there for families, it is there for everyone. Um, and if you don't understand it, you can't engage with it, you're not going to, or, or, or there are terms which you find offensive and alienate, alienate you, you're not going to get a good experience. Um, and particularly language that promotes conflict feeds directly back into the experience of family life for children who are for children and families who are going through that um it, 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 we have a very adversarial system uh we have uh the way that we even draft documents at court is set up very much from the civil system of being one party against another that fundamentally starts pitching people against each other and we find parents coming to us and they're already ready for a fight and we almost have to talk them down for it because that's what they're expecting and that's what we're trying to change it's a huge cultural shift that we're looking to do and we need it and just to give you another really good example of the changing language we've got um the divorce law uh, uh, changing later this year, where we are finally scrapping some of the stranger terms that we use in in, in divorce. Um, for example, uh, there's you need two grants to get a divorce. Um, that's not changing, but they are decree nisi and decree absolute. And I always have to explain what that means. Nisi is Latin; it means unless. So you you get your decree, and, and unless someone else can show that you shouldn't be divorced, you will get your decree absolute. That's all going in April. We're going to have your conditional orders and your final orders. And that makes more sense. People understand that. It's, it's simple language. I think the other thing we have to remember is language evolves. What we think may be understandable now, come 10, 20 years, might not be. But unless we are listening to the people coming through, we're not going to understand that. Yeah, and I think it's really important you're, you're talking about the use of language. So, you know, I always say an expert in their field can explain things in very simple terms for their clients to understand. And I think lawyers that are able to articulate that, and particularly your pioneering change, is just wonderful because I think it's going to help. Like you say, the law is there for the families. They're the ones that need it. So, uh, yeah, absolutely love everything you're talking about. And you mentioned media before. I want to hop back to that because how do you think social media platforms can be used to help re-educate the public and the profession on the appropriate language? Well, social media is actually the main focus of the Family Law Language Project. And for us, it's all about engagement, getting people to engage with us um, and providing a space which is going to provide the the maximum impact. For example, if you've got uh, a news, uh, a storyline on a a, a TV soap that's got family law, that's maybe got something right or got something wrong or done something well, if you share it on social media, the message gets out there and the message is is seen and it's visible. Um, So for us, social media, it's it's really about engagement and visibility. And we are encouraging everyone to get involved. We cannot simply have a, a language project like this that is all lawyers talking about the law we're not going to achieve anything like that we need input from other people we need um, to understand what those experiences and perspectives are to really make the most of that and social media because it is social because it is out there because the reach is so great is really important for us to do that it, it, it really is. And you, you touched on a really important point about visibility because visibility begets visibility and it, it just allows that message to get out there um, and educate people so much. So I want to stick with with media because I know you, you talked about it a little bit earlier, but you previously described the media as the hardest nut to crack because their priorities are very different. You know, conflicts sell. What type of role does the media have in portraying family law cases? 
Well, it is a difficult one because the, for example, the divorce case that gets resolved and settled without conflict is not going to make great television viewing. What I think the important thing, however, is to get things right in terms of the language that you're using and the way you are portraying things. Um, the one of the, these huge misconceptions that that I think comes across uh, through through the media, through the way that family law is portrayed, is that the first thing you need to do is is speak to a lawyer and go to court. That's the last thing you should be doing. Well, not maybe not speaking to a lawyer, but court is actually the family court is a small part of a huge system of people who are there to help you. And I think if we are starting to see that depicted more accurately, even if you do have those high conflicts. Um, uh, storylines as long as you've you've also got that balance and using the right terms and doing doing the research properly it's hugely disappointing when you see an article talking about common law marriage or someone's common law wife we don't have that you read that particularly in the sort of well well-renowned uh, articles and publications that you think they've done their research on people absorb that that's really that's a really damaging thing to see so I think actually getting these things right even if they are in the context of something a bit more dramatic is really important important yeah absolutely you know we've got to get the facts right we've got to educate people uh, effectively and properly and accurately so completely agree time for a quick break from the show are you a legal aid practitioner in england and wales specializing in civil or criminal legal aid matters if you are this message is for you As a legal aid solicitor, you don't have time to waste on legal aid case management software that doesn't work to your needs. That's why Clio has developed a quicker, more accurate and affordable solution for legal aid solicitors in England and Wales. It could save you hours in your month, particularly when it comes to end of month invoicing and claims to the legal aid agency. To see how it all works, visit clio.com forward slash UK forward slash legal aid. That's Clio, C-L-I-O dot com forward slash UK forward slash legal aid. Now back to the show. And as you've sort of touched on, um, you know, there are many issues with the family justice system. What type of reforms do you believe would be most beneficial? Well, I think most family lawyers are very excited about the, the the change in the divorce law coming later this year. We have been campaigning for that for decades. We have been saying we need this for so long. And the, the real key to that is that we're going to remove the necessity to blame one of the parties for the breakdown in the marriage um, and allow there to be a mechanism for ending the marriage without having to... Uh, <sighs> provide particulars of the negative behaviour that has caused that. Um, So that's hugely significant. And we're we're all, I think, uh, anticipating that that's going to make a big difference to uh, the way that uh, we practice family law. We're going to see huge improvements uh, in that. Uh, We were also expecting uh, there to be some changes uh, in the way that the media can access family law and family law cases. Uh, the current president of the family division, uh, Sir Andrew McFarlane, has said that he wants to make um, uh, family justice system uh, more transparent. So I think we'll probably be seeing more reported cases, more cases where the media are allowed to go into court and actually report a bit more on what they're seeing. I think that's going to be hugely helpful to help sort of debunk some of the mystery around this, this process of going to court and actually helping people realise what's really going 
going on in, 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 in these courtrooms, that it's not just these huge battles. It's people trying to help families get, get, get solutions um, rather than trying to win or lose in a battle over something as important as you know, um, uh, where a child lives. So I think those are sort of some of the changes that we are going to be seeing in, in sort of the coming few years, probably, that, that are going to make a huge difference. Yeah, no, again, really well said. I think, you know, ultimately it needs to be done as amicably as possible. And I think if people get to see more of that, that it's not just all shouting and screaming at one another and there is actually, you know, processes and an amicable way of hopefully doing things, not all the time, but most of the time that will definitely help with the the education and changing that perspective. So how will the Divorce Dissolution Separation Act affect the way family lawyers practice? Well, I think we are going to be saving a lot of time, uh, whereas I would usually start out at, when I'm advising a client on the process and how you, how you, 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 you get uh, the, the, the legal divorce. I usually have to explain to them that you've got uh, these five facts you have to rely on, that if you want to divorce without having separated for two years, you have to uh, uh, rely on the other party's behaviour, you have to provide particulars, and then you have to provide all the advice around that. Because obviously their first question is, oh, well, is that going to impact my children? Is that going to impact me financially? And the answer to that is almost invariably no, but it's something we have to go through. You usually have to send, well, you don't have to, but it's good practice to send a letter trying to agree those particulars so that it's not received aggressively which will set everyone off on the wrong foot to start negotiating on anything else Um, and all that is going to pretty much fall away Uh, yes we will still have to advise on 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 the procedure and the new procedure and the timings are going to be slightly different Um, we're still I think waiting for some of the documentation to come out from the court in terms of practically how that how everything's going to work Um, so there'll be a few sort of bugs to sort of iron out in terms of, of practicalities but ultimately a lot of the nasty that we have at the, be- the beginning of a divorce that we, you know, I've said to clients, I'm really embarrassed to have to tell you this, but this is the way things are at the moment. That's going to fall away. And I think you're about to set out on a process where you will be negotiating some of the most important things in your life, a financial settlement, the arrangements for your children, having to do that from a starting point where you are immediately not only pitched against each other, but one party has to say why it's the other party's fault is hugely damaging and makes our job so much more difficult. So not only is that all that initial um, conflict at the beginning going to fall, fall away, hopefully we will be able to start that process in a much better place and reduce um, the, the conflict throughout the, uh, the divorce and separation process. Yeah, it seems to make a lot of sense to to me, and and like you say, it would remove a lot of that 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 conflict. And you know, ultimately, once uh, you know, it's like a pressure cooker, isn't it? The more that there is that sort of conflict in that environment, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. So if you can start on neutral, you know, safer, hopefully grounds where it's a little bit more amicable to start with, hopefully, you know, it'll be less combative throughout the process. And you know, you're you're, you're very active, you're out there, and in your recent interview with Karen Jones, the founder of City Wealth, you discuss how McFarland wants there to be a wider scope for cases to be reported to the public. Family law is currently, as you've mentioned, behind closed doors. What is your overall perspective on this? And will this affect how family law disputes are settled? 
This is a really tricky one. And there's been a, the, the debate about transparency and privacy and confidentiality has been is not a new debate. Um, and I think uh, uh, what um, Sir Andrew has been quite careful to say is I am not suggesting that we scrap all the anonymity and we, we don't pay any attention to people's right to private, um, keeping their private lives private and, and confidentiality. But that has to be balanced with actually demonstrating that we have an open uh, an open system that, uh, uh, that that we can see how things are done um, and it's going to be about finding that balance uh, in terms of how cases are run we do have lots of uh, mechanisms and options for resolving things without going to court and I think if people are suddenly more aware that uh, if they don't settle if they aren't prepared to have those make those compromises and have those conversations, there's more chance that their case may end up be being talked about in, in, in a newspaper or uh, on social media, even if it's uh, with anonymity. Um, and I think that will encourage people to look at the other options, uh, to, to, to focus more on settling without going down that route. Um, we've had uh, family law arbitration now for a good few years. It's a very good system, which is effectively where you um, you em employ a judge privately to hear your case and you agree to be bound by that decision. But it's private um, and you can be much more control over the case management side of things, which usually happens a lot more quickly. Um, so I think hopefully it's it, we're going to have sort of that that twofold effect. We're going to get the transparency that Sir Andrew wants, that we'll under, people will be able to understand more about what happens in the family courts, but also it will help people realise that actually that there, there are other options and they can settle out of court and there'll be that additional benefit for them in doing so. Yeah, and really, really well said, Emma, once, uh, once again. And, uh, you know, I guess I just want to build on this a little bit more because, you know, why are family law cases still decided behind closed doors is this because like you mentioned matters are private and they take place in a domestic environment uh well it's important to remember that it's not all behind closed doors some cases are heard in public particularly some cases that go to the high court but there's currently restrictions on what the um what the journalists can report on. So they can't sit there and say everything that's being talked about in court. There are certain rules about that. And if we change that, we open up that a bit. Again, it, it'll it'll be, uh, it'll again, demystify that because it's one thing to say, well, this happened and this happened, but actually being able to explain it in a bit more detail and understand what the process is, I think is really going to help people understand the experience of, of, of the family court rather than just, you know, be interested in, which celebrity is divorcing whom and, and, and what the issues are. Um, but the one of the real sort of drivers that's held people back and the opposite side of things, the privacy and the confidentiality side of things, is, of course, we are talking about people's most intimate lives. Sometimes we are uh, talking about that, that from a financial perspective and we are talking about, you know, sometimes there's a real analysis of someone's spending and why should someone have that? broadcast to everyone but also we, we may be looking about conduct we may be looking at, at, at issues of domestic abuse and then of course you've got children and the idea that a child may see their name or may see their case being talked about in the media is going to have an impact on them and it's all about balancing that against the need to have a transparent system uh, so it's it's a really it's a really tricky one it's a tricky debate but those those are the main issues yeah, and thank you again for, for highlighting those those main issues. And typically, you know, there is the idea, as you were alluding to a little bit earlier as well, that family disputes have to be aggressive and confrontational. What can be done to challenge this stereotype? I know we've talked about the act changing, but is there other things or other things that could be done? 
I think uh, there's a culture of uh, aggression, and that's not just within the media, not just within the understanding of the public of, of family law, but also within the profession as well. I think there are there are sometimes when we have to, we have to actually say, are we really doing the right thing here in writing this particular letter, or uh, advising the clients fully on their options for not going down the the, the route or rushing off to court too quickly. Um, so I think you know everyone has to sort of start to, to sit up and say, right, are we doing enough? to really make the focus on sorting things out without going to court. But I think ultimately we we need to educate people. We need people to we need the, the systems of mediation, of arbitration, all the the counseling, the support, um, the local authorities, all that that huge system that helps that will help people, which includes lawyers, includes family lawyers, keep keep them out of that side of things. The understanding that that's that's the main thing. Court is the last resort. It's necessary in some cases, absolutely, but it's it's shifting that understanding. Um, and I think there's there's numerous ways we have to do that. We have to uh, uh, ideally uh, start uh, putting in education in the the, the education systems, um, and we need that visibility in the media, that that understanding through the profession, um, and just, I think, understanding that it's not just about lawyers going to court. So I think we've got a real sort of challenge to change the culture, a real challenge to educate the public, uh, ensure that the media is aware that that is, that is the way things are and that that is the way things are presented. Um, so, yeah, we've got a lot of work ahead of us. Yeah, but I think good for you highlighting this because, you know, there is that prevalent culture of aggressive family lawyers and you have suggested some good practices and things that could be done to hopefully remove this. So fingers crossed, you know, that continues. And again, that's what we're passionate about on League Speaking Podcast is to try and create the shift in in trends and try and make for change where it's needed. And most definitely on those points, I agree. So Emma, obviously you're in a, a highly demanding role as a partner. I can appreciate some days it will get quite stressful for you. How do you manage your own stress levels? Uh, well, I think it's it's good to have uh, a good sense of humour, um, surrounded by good colleagues. Uh, but I do have this guy on my desk as well. Uh, fortunately, I can't find the nose. But um, sometimes <laughs> just having a bit of a play, uh, rearranging it, just take your mind away from things. It's also been very useful when uh, clients have brought children into the office. Um, so this is kind of my, um, I should put, put that on there, my, my, little, my little sort of guilty pleasure to give myself that break from what I'm thinking about, focus on something else and um, just have a bit of fun. <laughs> I love that. And I'm a massive Mr. Potato Head fan. And I loved him, one of my favourite characters in Toy Story 2. And I love that you you bring that sort of human side to the to the role as well and, you know, try to, to sort of break away from all the stress of it. So love, love, love that. And um, Emma, if you don't mind discussing this, you have had chronic illness yourself. Has this affected your work? And if so, how? Um, yeah, I'm happy to discuss this. Uh, and again, for me, it's seeing other people going through similar experiences, particularly younger lawyers and understanding that you have to take care of yourself. If you don't take care of yourself, you are not going to be doing your clients any favours. And I, there can be a culture of just pushing yourself as far as you possibly can. Um, and it, it, we, family law is already a very stressful job. Um, and if you're unwell, that adds to the stress of things. And I think understanding the support that you've got around you um, and taking care of yourself is hugely important. Uh, for me, it was... Um, 
a chronic pain condition and I had to learn to uh, adapt my workspace for that and uh, make sure that I had the adjustments that I needed and to give myself a break every now and then and not worry about not add additional stress that I, I wasn't perhaps at my best that week or I hadn't managed to achieve everything I'd wanted to uh, so it's it's it can be difficult particularly with the pressures but it, taking care of yourself is the best thing you can do to do to be the best lawyer that you can yeah and I think that's really sage advice because I always say you can't pour from an empty cup you know you can't help others if you don't help yourself and I think you've you know you've done tremendously well and uh, you know in, in terms of what you've achieved and coming through that you know it's really inspirational and you know and the fact that you're giving back now to your profession on top of the quality work to your clients you know we we, we applaud you and I just want to finally ask before we we wrap up uh, Emma since the pandemic most of us have been working remotely how have you found working from home yourself? Well, um, apart from the fact that it's it's occasionally quite nice to uh, be interrupted by my cat, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's allowed it's allowed family law to continue. I think that's hugely important. We immediately stepped up as soon as the pandemic hit and moved to um, remote hearings. It took us a while to sort of get the system down, and I think that is a benefit that's going to stay around. Personally, for me, I'd rather be in an office. I'd rather be surrounded by people. I think it's very difficult, uh, particularly, again, for the younger people coming through to absorb and train when you're not literally surrounded by that. Um, so I have found it quite difficult I think suddenly being on my own most days and in, in, in a study I'm very much looking forward to sort of getting back into a routine of going into the office I think it's going to be balanced with sort of hybrid working particularly for remote hearings and things like that um, but family law as I said it, it, it the community is a huge part of that and if you're not physically able to see people that makes it very difficult. Yeah, and I, I love that you, you remain to keep highlighting community because it is so important and you touched on there the the junior lawyers and it, and it is much harder for them they don't have as much experience under the belt they don't have the the expertise they're still learning they're developing what advice would you give to them you know given that a lot of them may still be working remotely or hybrid don't be afraid to pick up the phone even if you've not got a specific question if you are just struggling or you want to uh it's just offload something. People are still there, even if they're not there. I think if you are, it, it may take a bit more, bit more effort. And, and if you do feel like you need that support, say something. And again, that can be difficult, but we have all been there. We have all struggled with the issues you are struggling with. Uh, I think we were, we were lucky that we literally had a room full of people to watch to learn from even listen to people taking calls and not having that must be, must be really difficult. So you're not alone. We are still here. Don't forget that. And there won't be, well, I imagine there'd be very, very few family lawyers, experienced family lawyers out there who wouldn't be happy to take the time just to have a chat with you if that's what you feel that you need. Yeah, and it's so good that you mentioned that. And it's obviously how inclusive you are as a as a partner, but also as a team player and someone who wants to look after the next generation of lawyers. So thank you so much for, for sharing that. And thank you so much for coming on the, the show today, Emma. It's been absolutely fascinating learning about your journey, the practice of family law and, you know, the changes and, and everything else that you're up to. And on that note, if our listeners would like to know more about the Family Law Language Project, which I'm sure they will, what's the best way for them to contact you? Feel free to shout out any social media or website links and we'll also share them with this episode for you too 
Thank you so much. Well, we've tried to keep things as easy to find as possible. Um, and so whilst the the uh, the website's a little bit long, is exactly what it says. So it's uh, uh, thefamilylawlanguageproject.co.uk. Uh, you can find our useful articles there. You can find all our contact details. There's a submission form. Um, and that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with us. We're also on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We've got a YouTube channel. You should put in Family Law Language Project. You should find us fairly easily. We've got a fantastic fantastic logo um which uh, uh was designed um by a fantastic artist in in ohio called flatbed red um and it's colorful it's engaging and we've gone with that color theme to sort of really really bring things um make things stand out um so look for that it's very recognizable uh, we're also on linkedin um so we're relatively easy to find um and that was the idea so uh we do have an email address as well which is very simply info at the family language project.co.uk again trying to be very simple about what what we are so um do feel free to get in touch and follow us on social media and also if you do see anything hear anything that you either want to shout out about in terms of family or language or say hey i don't think they've got this quite right um do let us know we do say we're not we're not there to be critical uh so be nice be kind but we are there to explain explore and um inform people so do feel free to tag us if you think it uh we need to be tagged in something Love it. And I love that you're omnipresent and I love that you're doing this and you're trying to help educate and it all comes from a good place to make family law and people educated around the uh, the language much, much better. So thank you ever so much, Emma. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show today. From all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast, wishing you lots of continued success with your careers. Over and out. This week's review comes from Alicia Peaks. Five stars making me consider a legal career. Got introduced to this podcast by a friend and it's really opened my eyes to the different areas of law. Love it. Highly recommend. Alicia, thank you so much for your lovely kind words. We hope you choose to pursue a career in the law. From all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast, thanks a million. 